and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. In Revelation chapter 9, that's where we are this morning. If you're visiting with us, um, I'll do my best to give you a little bit of context, but uh, it would probably take me more time than I have to get you caught up to speed in nine chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, but essentially what you have going on in this book is, um, during the, the chapters that we're in right now, is God describing judgments that come on the earth. Um, and so we looked at seven seal judgments in chapters 6 through 8. We're looking at the seven trumpet judgments. And so these trumpets that angels blow that announce uh, judgment that God is going to bring on the earth. And uh, as we've gone through, the trumpets in particular... Uh, we have seen that the first four were primarily about taking away uh, the things that people would trust in other than God. People lose, uh, they lose their economic position, they lose uh, their health. There's all these different things that are causing people to go, wow, all the stuff that I trusted in, it's gone. And so the things that we would trust in in the world are taken away. Um, and, and so they're wondering, what, what should I trust in? Who should I trust in? And then uh, the fifth trumpet re- reveals that what they've been trusting in all along has actually been demonic beings. Behind the worship of created things is actually a much more powerful force. Um, and that would be uh, an angel named Satan that fell, Lucifer that fell, and leads a rebellion against God. And so when we trust in things that are not God, we trust in created things for our position, our security, our, our, our contentment, our health, our, all those things, eventually what happens is we, we lose those things, and then it's revealed what we're truly worshiping, um, and that brings a, a sense of despair and depression. And so that kind of sums up the first five trumpets. The sixth one, what happens is now, now that these demonic beings are sort of in charge of humanity, uh, war on a scale that uh, has not been seen is going to happen. Um, And so when we trust in something other than God, eventually that thing gets stripped away from us. When those things are stripped away from us, we realize what we've truly been worshiping, uh, something that can't deliver life. And then out of a sense of despair, uh, wars and different things break out. And that's kind of the pattern that you see Uh, in your handout. Uh, You have three series of judgments shown there. And so you have the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowls. Uh, Those those are, oftentimes you read them as linear. Sometimes they're they're linear, and sometimes they're actually overlapping uh, a little bit. Uh, The themes that we see in that is divine visitation, so God coming and visiting, either through himself or through angelic beings. Righteous judgment. And then, uh, again, I just mentioned, there's economic ruin, famine, plague, and war as we go through these. Loss of security and created things, uh, that resulting in demonic oppression. And then we're going to see in this passage, unrepentant hearts from the unbelieving. Even though uh, it's revealed what people have put their trust in and that it can't bring life, they still won't trust God. Um, and, uh, and so that, that's something that we have to recognize in ourselves that maybe, maybe this is something we need to deal with, something about uh, within ourselves where we've put more trust in the things around us than we have in God, um, the consequences that could follow and our need to change our minds and think differently about who God is. Uh, the other thing that we see throughout these chapters is the worship and thankfulness from the believing. 
Um, and so those who have trusted God, they're thankful to God for, for justice. They're thankful to God for forgiveness. Um, and so those are different themes that we see throughout this. Um, you kind of had three series of judgments there. There's the kind of have the, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. Those actually result in another series of judgment. Uh, Babylon, a representation for the world and its system being judged. Jesus' rule on earth, and then Satan and his followers judged. And then the final judgment is actually the, the complete separation of evil and sin uh, with righteous and righteousness and holiness. The, those things will no longer commingle. Those commingle on the earth right now, but in the end times, God's going to separate those things. When the new heavens and the new earth takes place, Evil and sin and death will be taken away into one place. The Babylon, or it's described as the lake of fire in the, in the scriptures. And then God and holiness and righteousness and justice are in another place. Right now we experience both of those on earth. Uh, when God brings about the new heavens and the new earth, they're completely separated from each other. Um, and so that, that's uh, something that we see at the end of the book. One of the things when we go into a passage like this is we want to be able to understand God's character, right? That's actually one of the major things that we do when we go to the scriptures. Who is God? What's he like? Uh, can, can I trust him? Is he worthy to be trusted? Um, and so in your handout there, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, it says the Lord, and anytime you see L-O-R-D, all caps like that, in the Old Testament, it's God's Old Testament name. Um, depending upon how you say it, they actually remove the vowels from it in the text as a way of respecting God's name. So it's either, it's either Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, when God gave Moses that name, he, Moses said, who should I say is sending me? And he said, tell them I am that I am. And so you could say the great I am. Okay. So the Lord, the great I am, passed in front of Moses and proclaimed. The Lord, the great I am, the Lord, the one who is uh, uncreated, he is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of their father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. In some ways, that's a very reassuring passage. In some ways, it's a very difficult one. We learn that God is compassionate. He's understanding. He cares. And he wants to change our situation. He's gracious. And he doesn't require us to change our situation. But instead, he gives us everything that we need to be saved. He's abounding in faithful love and truth. He wants us to know what it is to truly be cared for and truly be loved by him and also to have the truth, to know what is right and to know what is, what is wrong. It says that he's forgiving. He's willing to say you've wronged him, but he will forgive you. That's a part of his graciousness as well. And then we have three words that describe sin there. You have iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And iniquity has the idea of being bent or crooked. So in the scriptures, we learn that when God made humanity, Adam and Eve, he made us in his image. And when he made us in his image, he said that it was good. And so there was a time when humanity was, was right. We were as we should be. But then when sin enters the pictures, we become bent and crooked. And we all experience this. We're all have, we all have desires and things in us that are wrong. And so we have this, this bent, crooked nature. And, and he says that he's willing to forgive that. He also says that he's willing to forgive rebellion. 
that we've all fought against God. We've all said that, you know, you don't get to call the shots. You're not the king of the universe. I'm the king of my own little world here or queen. And I'm going to call the shots for myself, right? And so he's willing to forgive that rebellion. And then he's also willing to forgive sin. And those are the things that we do that harm God. You actually, we, we take actions that actually hurt God and his heart. And then we also take actions that hurt each other. And he says that he's willing to forgive those. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So those who do not receive his forgiveness, those who reject his forgiveness, those who would fight back against his forgiveness and say they have no need of it, he says he's not going to leave the guilty unpunished. And as we go through these judgments within the book of Revelation, what we're going to see is that God's character is consistent, right? He said all along that there is an avenue of forgiveness. In the Old Testament, it was a sacrificial system that pointed forward to Christ and his death on the cross. And so now we look back to the cross and we say that through Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, we can be forgiven of our, of our iniquity, our brokenness. You know, that when, when, when Jesus rose from the dead, he actually did so to make us whole again. So if you're in Christ, you're, you're not broken. You still have sin in your flesh and you still have the draw towards sin. But if you're in Christ, you're not bent, you're not broken. That's taken away and you're made new. You're made whole again. Okay, and so he forgives that and he actually replaces the brokenness that we once experienced with his own character, his own nature. When Jesus died on the cross, he died between two rebels. He died between two insurrectionists to Rome. He actually died, that was the, the, the charge that stuck. He was an insurrectionist against Rome. So Jesus died as a rebel. He died in our place and for our rebellion against God. And then he died in our place and for our individual sins that we've done against each other, harming each other, and things that we've done against God. And that's the gospel. That's his graciousness. That he says, I'm going to take away your bent and broken nature the, the old ways of the, that you had, I'm going to replace them with his own son's nature, his own, with Jesus's way of life. And then he's going to forgive us of our rebellion. We're no longer re rebels in, against God, but we're actually brought in as co-heirs and children of God. And then, then he deals with all of the individual acts that we've done that have harmed others and him. The, the gospel deals with all of those things. And at the same time, not everyone accepts the gospel. Those, there are those who reject Christ, and he says that the guilty will not go unpunished. And essentially, that's what we see in these judgments within the book of Revelation, is God's punishment of sin on the earth. So let me pray with you, and we'll look at this sixth trumpet. Father God, we thank you that you are compassionate, that you understand our brokenness, that you want to fix it, that you're gracious and you don't call us to make ourselves right, but instead you substitute your son on our behalf so that we can be made right through his action, through his character. I thank you that you're slow to anger and you, you don't act against us quickly, but instead you give many, many opportunities to repent. You have, you have faithful love and truth and you long for us to uh, be cared for as, as we embrace you and we experience the guidance that only you can offer in truth. Uh, you're forgiving and you've taken away all of the wrong that is within me, all of the wrong that was wrong, all of that was wrong in my approach towards you, and all the wrong that I've done towards others. You've forgiven all of that. And so I thank you for that good news, that gospel, the gospel of peace that we have in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 13 there of Revelation chapter 9, this being the, the sixth trumpet. It says, the sixth angel blew his trumpet from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. I heard a voice 
Say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. This sounds like a pretty serious judgment. This sixth trumpet, it sounded after a voice from the altar that is before God calls out. Uh, we've seen this altar show up a couple of times. If you're not familiar with the tabernacle, tabernacle or temple in the Old Testament, uh, there was an altar that they performed sacrifices on, and on the four corners of it, there were horns. Those horns represented God's wrath, and they would take the blood and they would put it on the horns, and it was a representation of God's wrath being satisfied, uh, justice being um, procured through the, the loss of that life uh, of the animal. Uh, we now look at that and we say it wasn't about the blood of, of bulls or goats, but it's actually the blood of Christ that's been put on the four horns of the altar that is within heaven that forgives us of our sin and takes away the wrath of God so that we will no longer experience that when we trust Jesus. Uh, we know from chapter 6 of Revelation that there are voices under the altar and those represented tribulation martyrs, those who gave their lives, give their lives during the time of the tribulation. This, vault, this voice comes from before the altar, and it's probably that of like the imagery of a priest being before the altar. And so we could probably sub in Jesus here. It's not specifically saying that, but it, it's plausible that Jesus' voice is the one that calls out to these angels and tells them to act. And what this trumpet does is it releases four angels held at the Euphrates River. Now, this is one where if you don't know the scriptures or maybe the Middle East, the Euphrates River is a very important landmarker within that area. And so during the time of the Roman Empire, it marked the boundary of the Roman Empire. Um, the other side of the river would have been where the Parthian, we would understand it maybe as the Arab Empire started. Okay, And so you had that being a dividing mark. It was also the edge of the promised land. When, when God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, he told them that the land that his uh, ancestors would, would inherit would be all the way to the Euphrates River. And so it's a marker of the edge of the promised land. And so uh, from the other side and, and from this area, uh, there's these angels that are released. And we know that angels are not bound, so these would be better understood as demonic beings. And God has set forward a time, a very specific time, an hour, day, month, and year. Uh, God has foreordained when this is going to happen, when this large battle will then take place following the release of these demonic beings. And so there's this military force on an unprecedented scale that's going to get released. We're going to see that in the next verse. Uh, the timing of the release, again, is foreordained by God. It brings death to a third of the population of the earth via war. And the, the Jewish reader, uh, or maybe somebody with a, familiar with the Old Testament, they would have remembered when uh, Jerusalem was judged, when God used Babylon to judge Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 5. He said that a third of the population would die by famine and plague, a third would die by the sword, and a third would be carried into captivity. And so there's kind of a reminder of this is consistent with the way that God has judged in the past, but uh, this isn't just a city or a nation of uh, Jerusalem, but instead this is a worldwide thing that's taking place. In verse 16 it says that the number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. Uh, the size of this force is definitely debated. Um, and so in the Greek, it actually just says myrias, myrias, or a myriad of myriads. Okay, so 10,000 times 10,000, and then they actually uh, duplicate that. You get 200 million. And so that's kind of how they land on that, that number, 200 million. 
And so if this term refers to a literal number, the size of this army, it describes an unbelievably big military force. Um, I did a little bit of digging. The largest military in the world right now is about 200, or excuse me, 2 million people uh, in China. If you add up the top 10 militaries in the world right now, it's about 9.6 million troops. Um, so this is talking about something that is 20 times bigger than the top 10 militaries in the world right now. So if it's a literal number, it's unbelievably big. Um, another approach to understand what's being said here is instead of viewing it as a literal number, is to look at other places in Scripture where a word is used back to back, like Mirius, Mirius. Uh, one of those places, and if you don't know this verse, great verse to know, Isaiah 26 3, it says, You keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. And that translation, we get perfect peace in the Hebrew, it's shalom, shalom. Um, and so it's like the idea of peace squared. And when we hear the word peace, maybe we think one thing. The Jewish mind, when they heard shalom, it meant, it meant harmony and unity and peace with God. Right? So he's, he, Isaiah is saying that if you, if you trust him and you have your mind on him, if it stayed on him, then you're going to experience an unbreakable sense of unity and harmony and peace with God. Uh, if we apply that same idea to this phrase, Mirius, Mirius, you have the idea of a, uh, a military force that is innumerable and unstoppable. Okay, That's kind of what's being conveyed here. It's really big and nobody's stopping it. And I think that's probably the best way to understand what he's saying here. This is a military force that is gigantic. It comes from the Euphrates River. Um, and we're going to get into a little bit of what people have then thought with that based upon it coming from that place. Um, but it's, it's going to be released to kill a third of the human population that is left during the time of the tribulation. Um, the, the bowl, or excuse me, not the bowl, but the uh, sealed judgments, a quarter of the population of the earth is killed under the, these, these judgments, a third. And so you have half of the population of the earth dying during this time, um, if you look at these things, literal and future. Uh, and then he goes on to describe this, this army in verse 17. This is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red. And then this is the flower. Who knows how to pronounce it? Hyacinth, yeah, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. Now, you hear that, and you go, what on earth is being talked about? And that's what most people do when they read that. And then there's a whole bunch of different viewpoints on what's happening here. Some people read that, and to them it sounds like modern warfare. They go, that kind of sounds like maybe a tank or a cannon or something along those lines. Or uh, A lot of people have likened these to helicopters and different things. So maybe it's modern warfare that happens in the future. Others see a literal reference to Roman soldiers sacking Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Others see a mounted Parthian or Arab archer uh, representing a large Arab force. Some then go, ah, oh, that's probably uh, the invasion of Constantinople by the Ottoman Empire in about 1000 AD. Still others view these verses as purely symbolic of demonic destructive forces that will take life during the end times. Um, and so you have a whole bunch of different viewpoints on what this, what this might be. Um, I was talking to somebody, they really love Jonathan Edwards, a, um, a commentator on the Bible from a couple hundred years ago. He was like, 
certain that this was the, the Ottoman siege of Constantinople. Um, the post-millennials, they, they have a tendency to look at uh, the events that are happening in Revelation as things that took place historically. And so a lot of them would look at this and say that happened in 70 AD. That's talking about the Romans um, taking Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, uh, there's the amillennialist view or a realized millennium is that we are currently living in the time of the millennium and these events are cyclical throughout history until Jesus returns. So, so they might say maybe it was 70 AD, maybe it was Constantinople, maybe it's something that's, maybe it was World War I, maybe it's representative of all these different things that happen throughout the course of human history. And then the premillennialist view says these are things that are future events that have yet to happen. I was talking to somebody else. So you have post-millennials, all-millennials, pre. Somebody else was saying, I'm a pan-millennialist. I believe that in the end, it'll all pan out. Um, <laughs> and so it's one of those things where there's so many different views on it. Um, and as we've been going through this, I've been kind of sharing with you some of the different views. But I, I think it's talking about future events. Um, at the same time, I hold that understanding pretty loosely. Um, and I'm totally okay with God showing me that I'm wrong about it. I think more important than any of those things is how, what does this mean about how I should live today? Um, if God's judgment of sin is this serious, then, then what, how should it change about the way that I'm living today? And I think that's the most important thing for us to gather. Um, if you look at this, a couple other places, uh, um, Revelation chapter 16 talks about the Euphrates River drying up and this army crossing that, that river. Um, and then Daniel chapter 11 actually talks about a, a similar situation where there's an army that crosses and invades. Um, from the Jewish mindset, they're crossing the Euphrates, they're entering the promised land. There's a very Jewish conflict that's coming here. Um, and they're there to kill a third of the earth's population. Verse 20. It says, the rest of the people who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. They did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. And so as you, as you go through this, um, these, these judgments, they're, they're shattering and unmistakably from God. Um, and yet people don't repent. I remember, walk through the, the process of the, the trumpets with me. The first four take away people's security. They, they lose their economic livelihood. They're, they're not wondering, like you and I as Americans, we wonder what we're going to eat later, not if we'll eat later. These people are wondering if, where is food coming from? Where is my security? Where is my hope? All the things that we would uh, look at and go, I've got it kind of together. They're going, we got none of it. This, this, what's happening on the earth has stripped all of the things that we would trust away. And then when they lose all the things that they would trust and those things are taken away, the, the next trumpet, what it does is God unleashes demonic beings to a place where they're bringing depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. So we lose, uh, we lose the things that we have our hope in. When we lose the things that we have our hope in and, our, and we're not in God, it takes us to a place of depression that makes us want to lose our lives. Um, and then here, the, the ensuing war that comes from a, a society, a world that is lost without God, takes place. And so, but still they don't repent. The hardness of the human heart is at times incomprehensible. Jesus said in the parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus, um, he, he says that even if someone came back from the dead to tell them to trust God, they wouldn't do it. 
Um, and, uh, you know, it's crazy if somebody did do that. You know, Jesus was actually predicting, telling us what he would do, that he would come back from death, that he would reveal the will of God and the person of God and the way to be saved. And yet there are still those who reject his message of peace through his sacrifice on their behalf. And so God's justice and his love are there. But what happens when people, when the, when the pattern of our lives is in the pursuit of created things or idols, uh, these unholy practices follow. And he says the first one is murder. Um, that's taking, taking life in a malicious and unjust manner. Uh, you have to understand that there are times when the taking of human life is appropriate. It's very rare. Um, if you were to be enlisted in the army, say you get you get called up and you're called to war and you've got to go then carry a rifle and pull the trigger, um, that, that's just. Um, the cause of the war may or may not be just, but for you to be enlisted and act on the behalf of your government, it's just. Um, and so you, you shouldn't view people that have been a part of war as somebody that is a murderer. Now, murders happen in war when people take life unjustly. But the average soldier who enters the war and has to make that decision and then pulls the trigger, their action is not murder. Um, there's an aspect of it being justified. Another place where it would be justified, and Moses, uh, or excuse me, not Moses, Noah, uh, the ark lands and, and he gets off the ark and God tells him that he basically he's instituting human government and if someone takes the life of another human, the, then the government within that area should take that person's life. God actually endorses capital punishment. When you take the life of another person, he says that your life should be forfeit as well. Um, and so that, that would be another place where a government would step in and they would be justified in taking a person's life. Now that could happen in an unjustified manner as well, and there's a lot of care that should be given to it, but those would be times where taking life is, is just. It's very rare. The odds of any of us ever doing those things, <laughs> I mean, we might go to war, but the odds of the, you and I doing that, it, it's probably not going to happen. And so it's very unlikely that I will ever have a situation where taking another person's life is justified. Very unlikely. The other thing that's more common to us would be harboring hatred for others. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that hatred is akin to murder. Uh, and so if you, if you hate a group of people or you hate another individual or, uh, you know, that, the, that group of people because of their ideology, I hate them. I have no room for them in my life and I would not share the love of God with them. Uh, and he says that's wrong. So you have murder. The next one is sorceries. And the Greek word there is pharmakian. We get the word pharmacy from it. Uh, and the meaning is the use of drugs which resulted in communion with demonic beings. Um, this was common in most religions throughout the history of the world. Uh, in order to have an experience with their God, they would go gather some mushrooms. They would smoke something. They would, whatever the case may be. And so it, it, there was, uh, like the, the oracle at Delphi, uh, the, 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 that cave that she was in where, where the, that oracle would have then given prophecy, was filled with a noxious gas. You'd hallucinate too. Um, but the idea is that in those drugs is actually communion with demonic beings. Right, And so like when we take communion, we take a, 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 a cup of juice and a little bit of bread. And the idea is that we're actually communing with God through that. We're actually having a moment where we're recognizing who God is and what he's done. The fellowship, the closeness that we have with him through what Jesus did on our behalf, remembering. And there's a communion, a fellowship with God through that. 
What the scriptures reveal about drugs is that they actually bring you into a circumstance where you're having communion with demonic beings. And so the message is very clear. Don't do drugs. Like, I mean, for so many reasons. But And we know that, right? Like you, you went to dare. You heard that somewhere. But they didn't tell you when you smoke that, you're hanging out with demons. When you put that in your body, you're actually inviting demonic communion activity into your life. It's not just a chemical experience. There's something spiritual about it, and it's dangerous. Now, what I also want you to know is that there's freedom from that in Christ. All right? And so we have a recovery group that meets on Sunday night. And a lot of that is people coming out. There's other things, but people coming out of drug use and finding health and life in Christ. We have counselors on staff who are skilled in this and have done it for many years, helped people come out of that. But you need to understand that when you take the drug, you're not just getting high. You're joining in a sense of communion with demonic beings. Now, if you're in Christ, that demon cannot indwell you. The spirit of Christ indwells you, and it cannot. But it will oppress you. And so it's a very serious thing to, to stay away from drugs. Um, very, very serious thing. It's not just a chemical thing in your head. It's not just a sense of relief for a little while. It's not just whatever the society says it is. It's deeper, it's spiritual, and it's dangerous. And the scriptures tell us clearly not to do it. Um, the other thing about the use of drugs is, uh, like I can have a glass of wine with dinner tonight and not be drunk. But if you take drugs, the point is intoxication, right? Right? That's the objective, intoxication. And so if your goal is to be intoxicated, to remove yourself from the situation that you're in, the, uh, whatever's going on in your life, it's a sense of relief, there's a better place to go. There's a much better place to go for relief. There's a much better place to go for life, for security. And it's quite obviously to Christ. And so he wants to be that for us rather than our turning ourselves over to something far more destructive. The next thing that he mentions is sexual immorality. And so you have any sexual thought in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says that to lust is to uh, be a part of adultery. And so any sexual thought or action taken outside of the marriage between one man and one woman. When God talks about the union in Genesis chapter 3, he brings man and woman together, and they're naked and unashamed. There's an aspect where they are mentally together, they're emotionally together, they're spiritually together, and the physical act is an overflow of those things. It's a sense of intimacy that is acted out in the sexual act. And so anything other than that, he described, the scriptures say, is sexual immorality. And so what we often do with sex is we short-circuit the process. Instead of saying, I am in covenant, marriage, united to this person. We are one flesh, and nobody else is a part of this. Um, and, and we are united mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And because we are, we then get to enjoy the physical act of intimacy as well. And that's what scripture reveals sex should be. But what our culture does is it short circuits it and it says no covenant. You can, you can come together and ignore everything but the physical aspect. Take from the other person something that doesn't belong to you, that you have no right to take. Give to something, the other person that you can't get back. And then separate from each other and wonder why it hurts. 
And so God's laws are about protecting us ultimately. But life's lived in pursuit of physical things, created things. He says that it results in us being willing to take life of others. It, means, it results in us um, worshiping demonic forces in one shape or form or another. Drugs are the quickest path there. It results in sexual immorality. And then the last thing is theft, dishonest gain at the expense of others. And this could be individual or institutional, right? So you could, as an individual, say, I'm willing to take something from you that doesn't belong to me. And, uh, and, and I'm willing to exploit uh, maybe something about you so that I can take it from you. Be that something like money or, or uh, many other things. But then it could also be institutional. There are ways of thoughts and government systems that instead of rewarding those who work with their own hands and then caring for those who can't work with their own hands, it actually takes from those who are working and gives it to those who are capable of working but not. That's problematic. That's theft, right? That would be institutional theft. Um, and so there's a danger in that within governments. Whatever the case, when you look at these, these patterns of life, probably better understood as patterns of lifelessness, they're defined as sin and judged throughout Scripture. When you look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, all four of these are taken up. When you look at the judgment of Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 16, all four of them are addressed. So the Old, Old Testament addresses these, these four transgressions. Um, you could read through the Levitical law and find it there as well. It's throughout the Old Testament. God is saying that these are things, taking the life of others, uh, taking drugs in the pursuit of demonic beings, the sexual immorality and theft, they're always wrong. They're always wrong. You're never going to go, well, that was a good time to kill somebody um, without justification. You're never going to say, you know, the drug, I really need the drug, and if I don't have the drug, then I can't be whole. No, it doesn't result in your wholeness. It results in your destruction. Sexual immorality does the same thing, and so does theft. And so it's brought up throughout the scriptures. Jesus' teachings address all of these, Mark chapter 10 and John chapter 10, and the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So the, Jesus says, affirms these things. Uh, the Acts, uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts and the church affirm this as well, that these are things that we should never partake in. Um, I'm never going to unjustly take another person's life. I'll probably never take another person's life. I shouldn't harbor hatred in my heart towards others. I shouldn't be involved in drug use or the worship of demonic beings. I should stay as far away. Paul says to flee sexual immorality. Run away from it. You got an app on your phone that leads you to sexual immorality? Delete it. Um, it's not that complicated. Get away from it. Um, and then don't be willing to take from others what doesn't belong to you. Um, but instead, work with your own hands so that you can bless other people. And so when you look at this, God's character is consistent. We go through these trumpet judgments and we look at these things. It's not new information. It is new information about how God is going to judge in the end times. But it's not new information about God or His character. He is consistent. He will not leave sin unpunished. But He is also compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love and truth. You have to understand that God has no desire for any of us to go through this type of judgment. He doesn't want to strip away the things that we would put our hope in. Instead, he wants us to trust him and then things like material blessings and uh, things that we might put our hope in. We see them as objects that we can steward for the benefit of others. Instead of my hope is in my bank account, no, my hope is in Christ, and my stewardship of my bank account is to make sure you are taken care of, or others. It transforms the way that you look 
at created things when your mind is on Christ. But the trumpet judgments, they demonstrate God's settled disposition towards sin, evil, and death. He's not going to wake up one day and go, you know, I changed my mind about evil. I've got a new definition, and uh, you're going to like it because it lets you indulge your sin. It's not going to happen. We do that. We wake up one morning and say, you know, I would rather indulge my sin, and so I'm going to come up with a new definition for what's right and wrong, and it'll be standardized for me so that I can look better than everybody else and feel justified in my wrongdoing. We do that. But God's not going to wake up one day and change his mind. His disposition is settled towards sin, evil, and death. You read that passage where Jesus shows up at Lazarus' grave, and everyone around him is crying. And there's that, you know, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. You understand that, that when God interacts with death, it brings him to tears. He doesn't want it for us. It's not his desire. But instead, he's willing to give his own life so that we could be saved from the consequences of sin, evil, and death. The other thing that we see within the book of Revelation is that divine justice belongs to Jesus, and he will see sin, evil, and death eradicated. I mentioned this earlier. He's going to take those things, ball them up, and throw them into the lake of fire, create a new heavens and a new earth. Sin, evil, and death will have nothing to do with the new creation. It'll have nothing to do with it. And so that's a hope that we look forward to, that those things are removed. Right? The things that we go through where somebody that we love and care about deals with sickness. That's not part of the new creation. Uh, somebody's addicted to a substance that's tearing them apart. That's not part of the new creation. All those things are balled up and thrown into the lake of fire. The new heavens and the new earth is a glorious place that God promises to us that is filled with his presence, his, presence, his goodness. And everything that you want in life will be there. Everything that you should want in life will be there. So we must not forget what Jesus has already done to overcome sin and death as well as defeat evil. His death on the cross has removed all the consequences of our sin. Remember this. We're described as full of iniquity, rebellion, and sin. We are bent and broken. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection makes us whole. New creations. Still have sin in the flesh, still have temptation, but we have a new way of living. We are not who we once were. And if you're not in Christ, I want you to understand, this is what Jesus is offering you. And you know it. You know you're bent. You know you're broken. You wouldn't be here otherwise. You know that there are problems in your life, and you've been seeking out worldly solutions. Jesus is saying, trust me, and I will make you whole again. Believe in his death to take away the consequences of rebellion and sin and trust in his resurrection to give you the wholeness of life that you're looking for. So his death on the cross has removed all the consequences of sin from our account and his resurrection has ensured our ongoing transformation from brokenness to wholeness in him. You have to understand that this is what the gospel is. And it's why passages like this, when you see God's judgment and you see what's going to happen to those who place their faith in something other than him, the consistent call is don't be there. Just, just don't be there. But instead of seeing your life fall apart, instead of being torn apart by spiritual forces, instead of seeing your life come to an end without purpose and the sense of depression, instead of that, will you be made whole by trusting Jesus? Will you recognize your brokenness, your rebellion against God and your sin, and allow Him to totally take those things? Not only does He eradicate them 
from the new heavens and the new earth. Do you understand that he does it from us as well? Like I have no penalty to pay for sin because Christ paid it for me. I, I have no penalty to pay. It's gone. The power of sin within me, he's busted that up too. It still resides in my flesh, but his Holy Spirit indwells my spirit. And so when I'm tempted by the impulses of my flesh to live out a desire that goes against God, that would bring sin, that would bring death, that is a, a desire of evil, I have the power of God within me. So the penalty is taken away. The power is crushed by his Holy Spirit within me. And the presence of sin, we look forward to the complete lack of it in the new heavens and the new earth. Do you, do you know what God is offering? you. The penalty's gone, the power is removed, and the very presence of it is promised to be taken away in the future. Every time I share the gospel, I am at a loss for what people are waiting for. I just don't, I don't know what you're waiting for. A better offer to come along? Maybe you think that God couldn't be that gracious. I've got to clean myself up. He is. He's that gracious. He really is. He couldn't be that loving to just, to just wipe it all out and not ask me to pay anything. He did. He doesn't ask you to pay a thing. But he does ask us to trust him. To give our lives to him and to allow him to lead us. Let me pray with you. Father, this morning we are just in awe of who you are. When I look at the rearview mirror of my life, the, the places where I, I thought I had it all together and I was living in my own ability, or maybe following the people around me, uh, I just see one wreck after another. And yet you saved me from that. And, and that's my wreck became, you became my wreck on the cross and you took it away. My brokenness, my, my bent way of living. You replaced it. Not with a better version of me, but with you. You didn't replace my character with a better version of my character. You replaced my character with Jesus' character. And that's ongoing. And I'm so thankful. I thank you that the penalty of sin is removed. These, these judgments are something that are not a part of my life. Uh, I thank you that, uh, that the power of sin is something that you've overcome within me. And I don't look to this world around me for life or substance. Uh, I thank you for this world. It's beautiful. I, I, I want to be a part of redeeming it. But my life is in you. And I look forward to the time when you return. Sin, death, and evil are removed once and for all. We thank you for that glorious gospel. I thank you for the shalom, the peace, the unity, the harmony that we can have with you through what Jesus has done on our behalf. We're going to celebrate that today um, with a meal and with, uh, with baptism. We look forward to that time in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.